Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Will Duffin. As a global community of health professionals, we're all fascinated to learn how healthcare provision has been impacted by the pandemic in different health systems. And in previous episodes, we've met frontline clinicians from different corners of the globe. We met Luca Corenzo, an intensivist working in Milan, and of course, Emily Farkas, a, a cardiothoracic surgeon based in New York City. And in this installment, we'll be transporting you to the Republic of the Philippines. This is an archipelago of over 7,000 islands in the Western Pacific with a population approaching 120 million people. It's an industrialized developing nation, an economy that's transitioning from agriculture towards services and manufacturing. Filipino is the recognized national language. However, there are hundreds of different dialects. Many of you will know the Philippines for its spectacular diving or maybe world champion boxer Manny Pacquiao. And of course, it's a hotbed of musical talent and beauty. Everybody sings and it has no fewer than four Miss Universe winners in the last five years. However, like all corners of the globe, it hasn't escaped the horrors of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic now has over 450,000 confirmed cases with a death toll exceeding 8,700. And today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Patricia Gatbonton to the podcast. She's a 57 year old internist and endocrinologist and former editor in chief of the Manila, the Manila Times publication, Health News. She runs a, a private practice out of a small 300 bedded private hospital. Uh, and she's been doing this for the past 25 years, seeing around 12 to 15 patients a day in a combination of ward work and clinics. Tish, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Hello, hi Will, Mabuhay from Manila. Uh, Mabuhay in our language means uh, long life and live well. So it's kind of our live well and prosper. So Mabuhay to everyone on the podcast. And it's a great pleasure to join you this evening. It's uh, evening already, uh, nearly evening in Manila. We're about uh, GMT plus eight at the moment, I think. Yeah. So it's my just, great pleasure um, to join you. Thank great. You for asking. Mabuhay to you too, Trish. And you've just finished work. I see you're in some very fetching scrubs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you. And um, you're, you've, I understand you've met Manny Pacquiao at an airport. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yes, I have. Actually, um, he's our he's our boxing champion. Uh, we call him the the Pambansang Kamao, so like the 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 country's. Um, this is his like fist, right? So he's our like country's fist, and um, we're very proud to have Manny as a world class boxer. I was flying in from JFK to to Manila one. Um, in one trip and I didn't realize that he had gone to New York to to receive some kind of an award from some magazine some sort of um, I'm not sure if it was a SP award or some kind of award from us from a magazine and he was on and he was in first in, in a business class I was in the upper level he was on the bottom level and so when we found out he was on the plane um, we said, well, how are we going to be able to manage this? Because we didn't want to make it embarrassing for him. So we ran, we went into the lounge because he was at the lounge and we said he can't escape us in the lounge. So we were all doctors. There was about maybe 10 of us traveling together. And I met his wife in the toilet. <laughs> um, I, I went up to her and I said, hey, you know, um, do you mind? Because we're a group of doctors. We'd love to have a photograph with you and your husband. Would, would that be possible? And he was really actually sitting just quietly in a corner reading. Uh, hardcover I can't I don't know I think it was some kind of a hardcover book 
and you know she she you know she said oh yes of course certainly and so she um and I, I sort of went out and I got the people together hey guys guys we're gonna have an opportunity to have a photo op and um so she she went up and and he just looked up and he said oh and he said oh how nice doctors from you're all doctors and he had a little conversation with us and so he he agreed to have a photo we didn't want to get a we didn't want to abuse his kindness in having one photograph with everybody so we did a group photo made sure that he, i was standing right next to him then i cropped everybody else out <laughs> and then um so that photo that i have with him taken at an airport at narita actually in, in japan um is something that i take out every time he has a game uh, I kind of do it good luck for him. So I post it and um, everybody, when there's a game, when he's, he's fighting, uh, everybody's indoors. There's nobody, it's usually on a Sunday in the Philippines, everybody's indoors, a crime rate drops, even the robbers and thieves and everybody bad, you know, people who have bad, you know, stay home and watch Manny Pacquiao. <laughs> So, everything just um, comes to a standstill yeah, everyone just yes. pauses and they exactly. tune in and they, exactly yeah. so every, you know he's the one who is able to like you know uh, bring the philippines to a halt um and so yeah. i think it was a british boxer that he knocked down in the second round yeah so that was one of the the most amazing fight history because it only lasted less than six minutes yes yes he knocked somebody out right so we are well known for manny but we're also well known for, as I, as you mentioned, um, beauty and also singing. Um, yes. I was saying, if if anybody went to a hotel or a lounge or something in a in a, especially in the Middle East or in even in Europe, and you hear a really really good band, ask them. Ninety percent of the time, they would be a Filipino band, because yeah. we export a lot of nutrition. Um, export a lot of oh i have to say you know one of our biggest exports to the uk is actually nurses yeah and not only true. in the uk but also in the us mm -hmm. the highest number of deaths apparently in a in a no in a, in a in a racial or identity or nationality are actually filipinos um i heard that the other day from on a cnn report and um i didn't realize that even in the U us and in the uk apparently the majority of deaths are from Filipino nurses because mm -hmm. there's so many of them. Yes. So that's one of the biggest impacts I think that we share yeah. uh, in the Philippines and, and, and the UK. Well, it's it's a huge problem, yeah. I think, in the UK with, with, with the death rates is a black and ethnic minority um, health workers are and, and general population are disproportionately affected by COVID. They appear to be yes. more vulnerable to more severe disease. Uh, and it's something we, we just haven't been able to, yeah. to solve. So, so um, moving on to... But, but, yeah. the, but, but what's strange, Will, is that, um, you know, there, there are protocols for, you know, there's recommended protocols to... I mean, that protocols have changed, you know, so many times already. And there's updates coming through our society. It's called the Philippine Society of Infectious Diseases. Mm -hmm. And so they keep putting out our guidelines. They, they change the guidelines rapidly every time there's new evidence. And so, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. we get, you know, they, they do cascade it. And then we try to all follow the guidelines. And so follow, it shouldn't be, hmm, if we follow the guidelines, then I maybe that's the reason why our death rate is actually not so bad I yeah mean, so talking about death rates tish to, to tell mm -hmm. us uh, give us a flavor of what 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 things have been like for you in the philippines okay. in healthcare over the right. last uh, since march when, when this pandemic okay. broke well actually it it started apparently the first case was recorded in the philippines uh sometime mid-february uh, it was a 
person who came from Wuhan, who had traveled to the Philippines, they traveled directly from Wuhan to, to the south of the Philippines, where this beautiful beach called Boracay. I don't know if you've heard of Boracay, but it's world famous. And we also have these islands that are also world famous called Palawan. It's, it's been voted the top um, best island in the, in the, in the world uh, by Condé Nast for the last, I think, six, five or six years. And so they come direct, they come as tourists. And the first person who was recorded to have COVID in the country was a Chinese national and his partner who had come in from Wuhan. And when they came out, when they, you know, they had, we'd already heard about it coming in. And what they did, one of, the, one of the first things they did was to ban flights into Manila from Wuhan. And then after that started, they were talking about uh, an extreme lockdown immediately. So within, a month of the, epi, the, 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 the number of cases rising, uh, we were like in our 2000s, you know, something like that. We're at um, 400 and we're at how many thousand? 452,000 as of yesterday. Um, it was just about 2000. They, they decided the government and the, and the Department of Health and they had, there's a task force called the um, Interagency Task Force for COVID. So it's a representatives of different government, um, public, private, and also um, army, you know, stuff like that. And there's a whole task force. And then the, the president also sits on the task force. They decided that we, we needed to undergo extreme uh, lockdown. So quarantine, extended community quarantine. So it's called ECQ. So under ECQ, people weren't allowed to go to work. Malls were shut. Everything was pretty much shut. My parents, my parents are both 90, 94 and 82. My mom hasn't, honestly, my mom hasn't left the house since March. Um, my dad hasn't left the house since earlier than that. And then um, I'm, you're only allowed to leave the house in, 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 you know, if you had to go to get healthcare or if you had to get essential services like uh, groceries, you know, or, and markets. And they had to limit access and there were lines and then they had there was distancing, and then they mandate they mandated mask wearing um, ever since the beginning of the lockdown. I had they they had checkpoints. They had actually army checkpoints in different areas. And one time I got stopped. Um, there was a queue, but then they had several different la lanes uh, with soldiers. And then what you need to do is either that's why we're wearing these now. We we didn't I didn't used to wear scrubs it every day, but every time we go to work now, it was just easier because one, it's easy to identify you as a healthcare worker. And so um, nurses and doctors started wearing their scrubs to, to work as well. And then um, you have to show them an ID, some kind of um, evidence that you're a healthcare worker. And I just tended to drive with my stethoscope around my neck. And so, oh, they just kind of wave you on and then they let you go to the hospital. So it, it was an extreme lockdown for three months from March 15th to June, the end of June. and. Um, and even until now, schools are not yet back. My nephew who's in college started school, but he's still just doing it online. It's online education. And none of the schools have gone back ever since, since, uh, since March. Um, yeah, people very... who are at the moment, 65 and above are not allowed to leave the house still, right? And um, 18 unders. So even children or teenagers are also not allowed to leave the house. And um, they encourage working from home now. But, but what happened was when the pandemic happened, um, there was, uh, no, there was not only the extreme lockdown, but difficulty because people started, you know, 
it affected economics. But you know, the thing is, we didn't. Well, people would grumble and complain. But what's different, I think, for us is that our country, the countrymen, were more. Our, our my countrymen are more cooperative and compliant um, with the government regulations. We didn't. You know, what we've noticed is that compared to what I'm seeing, I've been following the, the, the US the, through the New York Times, as well as you with the Guardian and uh, Daily Mirror. Um, I've been looking at, you know, what they're putting in the headlines and, you know, you're seeing people going out and then not, not, not wearing masks. But in Asia, we've had, we've had outbreaks of, you know, we've had SARS before and we've had um, MERS-CoV. And um, we didn't have an extreme case because government mandated mask wearing this is the first time it's happened in the philippines but in hong kong and korea and japan they had mask wearing even earlier and so asians are more used to i think wearing masks and so it's not unusual it's almost a fashion statement in japan actually but in the philippines um, when they said that you needed to wear masks what they did was private corporations uh bought you know they they ordered from china and from neighboring countries because there was a there, there was a run on masks uh, surgical supplies and you know gloves and stuff like that people panicked and started to hoard so what they did was large corporations actually bought and then started distributing and then you had church groups who were distributing to those who couldn't afford to have masks and so you know they tried to manage the shortage government also uh, started distributing so and and the majority of the people started donating masks ppe um, and, and, and our hospital, our actual small, our small um, internal medicine department received so many donations, food, um, just, just support, so much support, PPEs, um, masks, uh, things that we needed. And, and so, so that support from the community as well as um, private individuals was quite overwhelming. And so we were very grateful for all the help that we needed. What happened was nobody was allowed to do um, medical arts. You weren't all the surgeries, all the outpatient, all the elective procedures were stopped, and everybody just concentrated on COVID. So what happened was when they said we couldn't go to work, by the 18th, a group of us in the hospital already formed a volunteer team to go on duty alongside our frontliners because our frontliners are just our medical residents. And we didn't want them overwhelmed or also overtired. And we wanted also to show our support for them. So there was a group of us uh, ranging from senior. I was probably, I'm in the top end of that range, but I did have somebody who was 62, uh, who was also our chairman, who, you know, who, who, who tried to help as well. And so there was a bunch of us trying to unload the ER by seeing all the outpatient consultations that were that overwhelmed the emergency room. Everybody who thought they might have a scratchy throat or a sore throat or thought they might have COVID, they were turfed to us. And so we actually went on duty for the first three months uh, to help out, to, to, to reduce the load for our frontliners. So basically that's what pretty much almost every hospital did. They had a, they had a team uh, who felt uh, willing and um, it wasn't mandate. We didn't have to, we weren't required to, but we came up with a team of people who were who had letter, less risk, you know, we didn't want our olders who had people who had diabetes or hypertension or you know whoever had a risk factor. We eliminated them from the team. We said no. I think you know we'll take care of it. And then what we did was every person who who paid us, we didn't accept the money. What we did was we put it toward a common fund, 
and it became the the fund to supplement whatever we needed to buy that the administration wasn't providing that we thought we needed more of or wasn't donated to us or and eventually that fund where we we people had donated money to we actually just gave it out the other day as the christmas bonus to add to the christmas bonus of the of the of the resident staff and so um that's what happened we had to pitch in and um at the height of the covid crisis we've had we kind of had two peaks the first was sort of in april april and may and then the second one was august and september where we had a whole bunch of people coming in we had to turn people away we couldn't accept and we had to start sending them to um uh national covid center the philippine general hospital which is the major um hospital government run hospital in the philippines the biggest one it's the one that does um accepts charity patients as well as paying patients it became an entire the entire hospital was converted to a covid hospital so they identified several covid hospitals in the metro area and metro cebu and metro davao which is the major major cities in different island groups and they identified major centers there so that um people who were couldn't afford a private care in terms of their covid had to be brought into those centers and to cope we had we had to turn people away at some point because we couldn't we couldn't keep them we couldn't keep them in an emergency room we couldn't put them in a room because the average length of stay for a covid patient was about 2 to 3 weeks they had and before you could release them you had to have two negative tests and so it really took a long time and so the beds were occupied for a long time and so for each patient you you only have a limited number of beds so there was a there was a crisis earlier on where we almost ran out of beds so it's been it's been tough the other difference will between us and and you guys is you guys have a national health service where the healthcare is actually subsidized in the philippines um majority of of the payment is out of pocket we do have about 50% of uh healthcare in the hospital is uh health maintenance organizations or what they call hmos right but 50% of the population has to pay out of pocket and then the government insurance system although they passed a law just about uh early last late last year early this year for universal healthcare similar to your nh nhs they're still ironing out the implementing rules and regulations and it's not going to come to reality to in about until about 2 or 3 years from now and they're still trying to find the money to where it's going to come from etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the implementation of that is going to take a while but so the burden is really heavy on the philippines and so it's in our best interest to keep the numbers as low as possible because honestly we would have a higher death rate if it got really really bad because people just couldn't afford it Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tish is very interesting hearing that. Many of those have parallels to certainly our experience in the UK. You describe all the camaraderie at the early start of the the uh, the pandemic and the outpouring of support and and then and, and from the public particularly towards health workers. Uh we were well, You guys had a I remember you guys yeah. had a you know, clap for carers. You got clap for carers. You know what yes. you know what they yeah. did for us? They would bring yeah. a fire fire ambulance, a, a fire yeah. an engine and they would spray the they would spray water and then wow. they would sign the they didn't do a clap for carers what they did is they drove around to different hospitals yeah. they had like a parade and they had like i don't know how many fire trucks and then they would play they would park in front of your hospital and then they would spray they would come out and then they would you know they would 
horn they would sound their their um their their what the do you siren. call that the, yeah the siren yeah and then they would spray water on the hot i don't know if it was like a blessing or something but right. definitely that was their way of saying thank you and so keep it the wasn't... windows closed otherwise we'll get a fire <laughs> fire hose through the... yeah 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 <laughs> no actually of course there it was closed but the thing is we you know we we would come out and then you know they'd be saluting you and drive through with with the fire engines and so that's how they did we didn't have the clap for care right we didn't i love have that the the the, the drive through um fire engine uh, parade I love how appreciation is shown in different world, yeah. different ways across different the world. Ways. You know, it, it has Absolutely. a unique kind of cultural stamp wherever you are. Um, so uh, the other yes. thing was interesting that you, you, know, you also experienced lockdown. I think almost every country in the world has had some form of lockdown to control yes. the outbreak. But the, interesting in the Philippines, that, that's been a perhaps more militaristic version. You say you've had the army has been deployed yes. with checkpoints. Yes. Yeah, that is a huge difference from mm. the UK where, you know, we haven't seen yes. the army's been very much in the in the background. We, yeah. we certainly haven't had had a, a military presence throughout any of it what was that something you're yeah. habituated to in the philippines or is that was that quite new was that quite shocking no 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 it's not shocking because um well you know in our in our past we've had several coup attempts before and this was in the you know during the time of um we've had three EDSA revolutions already right so every time we had a EDSA revolution we'd have army in the streets and tanks and stuff so actually it's not so much of a shock but the army was all only to ensure that um it's 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 more of ensuring rather than luck you know there were fines supposed to be fines if you're caught out and you're not supposed to be on the road and stuff but um definitely uh the army checkpoints we're just, you know, uh, it wasn't, it's not, it's not, it's not, we don't have a, it wasn't a concept of, oh, I'm scared the army's on the road. No, it's more of um, they're going to ensure compliance or they're, they're, each neighborhood, even our neighborhood. I live in a sort of gated, semi-gated community where we closed all the gates and the access was only one entrance and one exit. And, um, you know, you had to either have a sticker or some kind of thing so you can come in and so come go out and so they know, you know, where you come from and then they take your temperature. So people, each community sort of had to, or what they call barangay. We have little uh, political units called barangays and they take care of their own area. So for example, if you lived in, you, you live in Bristol. And so there's, you know, a small, the like Bristol takes care of itself and it can impose, you know, pretty much how it wants to, to set this up so they have you have a little bit of independence but again we do have an overall task force where the president is the head of the task force and he has our, he has some generals then he has the department of health um, secretary and then he has um, some intergovernment agencies the the you know the, the department of you know the, the people who take care of um distributing uh, relief and all of that. So they have all of that in board and they meet regularly and then they have uh, an update every week uh, on national television. And then you have, you know, and then every, there's a, there's a Viber group from the DOH that sends out the data every day. And if you subscribe to that group, you can get the most recent, um, you know, thing. So for us, the army isn't, you know, having the army on the street, time was we had a curfew there was a there was a there was an 8 a.m 8 p.m curfew yeah. at the lockdown and then it became 10 p.m uh, in in june 
and there's still a curfew now. It's we're still under curfew uh, after 10 p.m. Was there much resistance to that, Tish, or was that something oh. that people were able to accept? Um, actually, people there wasn't a there wasn't a lot of. I mean, of course, you say, "Oh no, why do we have to do this?" But you know, it's just a matter, I think, of understanding why it has to be done and the message, you know, being being said to you now listen you need to, we need to do this because and because uh com you have to comply because you want to protect your not only yourself but your family members and so people were encouraged to work from home we locked down as i said people allowed to go out even my parents haven't gone out for some since march and then um it's of course it's hard to get when you're in a small house and for example, you're living in a, you know, in a lower income neighborhood where people are crowded in a house. It, it, it's difficult and it's, it's easy to, it's easy to understand why it can't be done or it's difficult to do that they can isolate within amongst themselves. But generally the, the compliance and understanding for why it needs to be done is there. Of course, all the, yeah. all the collaterals, like, you know, my brother, um, my brother and his, 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 his daughter uh, lost their jobs. Um, a friend of mine closed her restaurant. So there, there, there was economic, there's economic, um, there's economic collateral, yes. And as hard as it, to, as it is to accept it, the bottom line is, as long as you understand that health is the most important, you don't want people to die, you don't want a loved one to die, you don't want to catch, you don't want to die of COVID alone, in the hospital with only healthcare workers around you, when they understand that, then compliance is easier. And so for us, um, it's kind of strange to read the headlines in not only America that they're losing their their their, their individual rights are being um, violated because they're being asked to wear a mask. And also in in England, sometimes I've been I've been as I said I follow the Guardian and, and the Daily Mirror, and I see the headlines about you know about, about mask wearing not mask wearing and we're like why can't they just get their act together and say everybody has to wear a mask in the philippines in manila now everywhere you go you either, you have to have both a mask and a face shield which is a facial covering they they're they they manage them very cheaply where there's a shield, plastic shield and then something that just hooks it to your ears like a pair of glasses and you wear that and then you have your mask underneath and everybody goes out with it. You can't go into public areas without it. And you would have either security guards, meaning you know each establishment has security personnel. If you go into a mall or a grocery store or market, then definitely there's some personnel as well there who will who will who will call you out. They won't let you in. And there's signs everywhere: no mask, no entry; no mask, no face shield, no entry. And then everywhere there are these you know alcohol dispenser stations either the automatic ones or they, you know, the guy will literally spray your hand. Wow. You, and then they have contact yeah. tracing. You have yeah. to either do a, you take a photo with your phone, a QR code, and then you yeah. fill it in yeah. before you go in, or you have to write it on a, you know, one of those, the, the handwritten uh, jotter where you put your name, your address, your contact number, and then the time that you were there. So you got to log in. And, it's, you know, it's, it's tedious. Do, yeah. Do, do you think that the uh, widespread adoption of PPE like, masks and face visors and things like contact tracing has been perhaps easier in Southeast Asia than in Western Europe and the US because you've been perhaps more exposed and uh, to, to respiratory viruses with with SARS and uh, you know and, and other recent outbreaks do you think that's made in a sense made yes. that that easier to 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 for oh, the absolutely to absolutely 
Yes, yes, because somebody like, for example, uh, Hong Kong had a really bad outbreak. I lived in Hong Kong for a while, and Hong Kong had really bad COVID, uh, uh, SARS-CoV, SARS-CoV, and also MERS and MERS-CoV. We had a little bit of MERS-CoV because we had a lot of Middle East workers coming back years back, and they had the same sort of oh, everybody has to wear a mask. And so, for I think in Southeast Asia in general, Japanese, Korean, South Asia, and and Southeast Asia ourselves. Singapore, um, everybody in Asia and South Asia mandated mask wearing very early on, and it was it was it was a general uh, trend. And um, I think compliance is a little different because of our cultural. Um, I think it's a cultural thing where you follow a leader, and you you don't tend to um, assert individual rights. I don't know if it has something to do with having been colonized by different countries for such a long time before. I mean, most of the Southeast Asian countries have been colonized in the past. We were colonized for a very long time by the Spanish, 300 years. Um, we also colonized us for a little bit. And then we had the Americans, of course. And so um, I'm not sure if that's built into our psyches, but we tend to follow um, mandates from the government a little bit more uh, a, a little better. <laughs> yes, without, it's very interesting too much, uh... observation, I think, Tish. And certainly in the US and the UK, you know, we are definitely on the liberal end of the political spectrum. And I think people, the, the, this notion of freedom of speech, individual rights, and perhaps a, a shrinking of the state is, uh, is very, yeah. uh, very prominent. And that perhaps does make it harder for uh, population level public health measures to be implemented when you don't have the uh, the, the 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 adherence of of your populace because they're yes, they're all yes. thinking well what about my rights you know these masks are yeah. they let me breathe you know yeah. I, I I should it's my body it's my choice you know there's, there's all that kind right, of right. rhetoric that's that's coming I mean, rightly yeah. or wrongly uh, it, it does it does create difficulties I think for, yes for, for, no, that, that's why it's, it's it's very hard for us to understand because you know given given you guys are much luckier you have a national health service. You have you have much more resources. Your countries are much richer than we are. So you know, for us, if we don't have compliance, then we would be in really we would be in deep deep trouble. That's why it's being hammered every you know messages. Really, the messaging is so important that you know what's more important. So the last one was there was a couple of messages. The last one was okay. Um, Christmas, no Christmas this year to make sure that you're all at Christmas next year, something like that. Because, um, you know, Christmas is a big deal. 90% of the country is Catholic with the largest Roman Catholic com uh, population outside Rome or outside Italy. Uh, so, um, you know, it's a big deal. And, you know, tonight, the 16th is when we start our Christmas um, novena where you start from the 16th and you end on the 24th and everybody goes to mass. It used to be midnight. Um, and, and you 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 go every night for nine nights, and it's like a um, what they call a, a uh, like something that you promise to do because you're you either giving thanks or asking something from God, and this is how you're going to you know you do your share, and you pray that God answers your prayers. And so the novena, which is part of the Christmas ritual, the 16th is when it's starting. Uh, people would flock to churches in the early morning. And, you know, we do this, um, there was a midnight one, and then there's one at five o'clock in the morning. People would get out of bed to do this. And it's part of the national ritual, the Philippine Christmas ritual. And that's banned. 
we're not allowed to have more than um, 30 people in a, in a, in a church in, at, at any one time. And can you imagine? So, so what we're doing now is we're doing it online. My mom is actually going to stay up and, 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 and go to church tonight at midnight. But, you know, part of it is being at the church and, and, and you know, greeting other, other um, churchgoers and stuff. But we, ha we can't have that this year. So we have to go online and get it done. And, and people do that now. So everyone's going to church online. And we're going to yeah, do yeah. Our, our, our Philippine Christmas online, yeah. you know, going to the masses. So that's how, how badly we've been affected. But, and, but, and, and, and Tish, in terms of different families meeting up geographically over Christmas, is that permitted in the Philippines? Is, no. is there any relaxation of lockdown measures during the, no. the holiday period? Or is no, that there's none. Actually, they're getting they, 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 they've been going to on television to let us know that you're not supposed to have uh, more than two. Like, for example, my family is a family of 11. OK, so that's my nuclear family. Those are my parents, my my brother, his their, their, my brother, my sister, their spouses and the, ch the grandchildren, which are only four. So we're actually only 11. But the they said 10, 10 people without have exceeding your household, you know, and one only, only one other household. So for us, my brother lives next door. And so my household and his household have been mingling ever since the beginning of the uh, lockdown because we share the same sort of house I mean you know they're right next door and uh, the children are in and out my brother comes in every day there's a gate that separates there's a backyard that we share kind of so we consider ourselves one household and then my sister who lives uh, about five kilometers away which about 10 miles um, five kilometers she comes in once a week and she has dinner with us on Sundays and um, there's only three of them that come in. So what happens in the house is we have a fairly big one. So we have different tables. <laughs> so they actually sit at a different table from us. And then there's a buffet right, where they pick up their food. And then we're in a different table. And then the, the next door neighbors are in a different table. So even if, you know, so that's the maximum that you can have. We have one extra person. Yeah. And, but, but because, you know, that, that my brother has three children. So we just say, you know, no one's really checking. But really, you're not allowed to have um, more than that. And so the other night, we had a Christmas party online. And um, that's where, how we've been doing Christmas parties and yeah, meetups so with friends. Christmas, All of it but is not on. as you know it. No, not as we know it. Yes. Definitely not. No. Yeah, yeah. And tell yeah. us, Tish, about the vaccine um, in the oh. Philippines. What, is there a plan for vaccine yes. rollout? What does that look like in well, the Philippines? Well, they're waiting on, I don't know. I think we're purchasing... I think the Chinese, I'm not sure if it's a Chinese vaccine. I'm not very happy about that, actually. I would rather get the Moderna um, vaccine because of the storage and also, of course, the efficacy. Um, I'm not sure what the government plans to buy, but there is a plan, and I think they've pre-ordered a vaccine from China. I'm not so sure about that. Um, and, um, of course, you know, we have, we have vaccinations for polio, for TB, TB is mandated. So when you're born, you get a TB vaccine. There's polio, DPB, you know, all the childhood vaccinations. Um, hepatitis is rec recommended, but not necessarily um, everybody. But most of the public, uh, most of people in private, private, uh, privately get the vaccines from their own pediatricians. So the mandated vaccines are the MMR, you know, DPT, polio, um, TB. So vaccinations 
are pretty good in the Philippines. Most of the children, as long as they're children, uh, were vaccinated either in their government health centers or health centers in their community or in schools. So everybody gets vaccinated. But this vaccine, I don't know how it's going to be rolled out, honestly. First of all, the resources to, to pay, I'm not sure if it's going to be paid for by the government or by in, industry and you know um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, corporations. We have many, many large corporations um, that, you know, that have donated lots and lots and lots of money already to help the government. And they've been really, really good. There's, there's this one corporation called San Miguel who ordered a lot of PPEs, flew in all sorts of things from all over the world, and then distrib distributed it for free. My hospital got an allocation from San Miguel, and they just listed all hospitals, and then they sent you know stuff. And so we have those really, really well-meaning and very generous non-governmental organizations who, who have been supporting and supplying PPEs and all that to everyone. But the vaccine's a different story. Um, it probably will need to be a combination of government money, personal resources, as well as subsidy by, um, by, by other, by corporations, non-government corporations, big, big, you know, big, yeah. big industry. There's a lot of, they're also, what do you call, um, big, uh, for example, they have this Ayala group, San Miguel group, um, the SM group. So they have these you know, people in the top, you know, billionaire uh, who have a lot of business and, 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 and real estate and, and making a lot of money, they're actually leading. And I have to say, you know, I couldn't be happier that they're, they've really stepped up and they've been really, you know, making, giving a lot of money. And um, San Miguel has a testing center. They actually put up a testing facility uh, uh, in a in a in a in what is in different areas in the Philippines, so they set up testing centers and and they're sub subsidizing the the cost of the test, and they're also doing it in their own facilities. They pay they they hired um, med techs and stuff. So it's a combination of fact because the government it's not going to be able to um, to take care of it all. So you really need yeah. the the cooperation of so many groups. To get yes, it it's a very wicked, complex problem, how to roll out a vaccine. So some plans are foot in the Philippines, but no concrete oh, ones as yet. Did you, did you know the, the, the first person who got the, the injection in the, in the UK was injected by a Filipino nurse? Yes, I think I did know that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was a Filipino nurse who gave the first vaccine now. Yes. So there we have a connection already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I, you know, as, as you said before, you know, the Filipino health workers continue to make a huge contribution to the NHS, a uh, yes. you know, really valued part of that. Um, I'm just interested, um, Tish, about some of your, your clinical experience with treating patients with COVID and certainly yeah. in your work as an internist and endocrinologist, you've, you've seen patients, some yes. of your patients have, have had COVID. Can you just give us a yes. sense of what that's been, what that's been like and a kind of patient basis and individual basis? Yeah, one, of, one of the first persons that I saw actually I've seen well I've had three patients I've lost three patients with COVID but I've also had successful um, COVID recovery patients um, one of the one of the most important patients that I had was actually an aunt of mine an aunt auntie family friend who was 87 was in the hospital for five weeks and so every single day uh, she's diabetic she's also on hemodialysis and she she developed COVID and um 
I actually had to be quarantined early on because of my first exposure to someone with COVID. We didn't know he had COVID. His, his symptoms, he was a 60, uh, 68 or 60, 68 year old man who came in complaining of vomiting and abdominal discomfort. And I saw him, uh, we weren't really wearing masks regularly. I was think I was wearing a surgical mask, um, but I wasn't wearing higher protection mask. And he didn't have a mask on and his son didn't have a mask on and we had gone in and he was in hospital only for two days and he said you know i've been vomiting my tummy hurts a bit and we gave him ppis we did a bit of workup tried to work him up for we were considering doing an endoscopy but it wasn't done because he actually improved very quickly from his symptoms we thought it might be just a regular you know run-of-the-mill gastritis etc and then he went home three days later four days later he comes back with high-grade fever and then the x-ray that was initially normal is, you know, less than a week ago, had now pneumonia. When we did the HRCT, then he did a swab. And then suddenly, within three days, he was he had passed away. And I had to be quarantined um, because of my exposure to him, as well as the, the resident who was take the residents who were taking care of him. And I was also swabbed and quarantined. So, you know, um, because the awareness wasn't there yet. This was something, this was very, very early in March, the first week or so of March. So he was my first mortality. Um, so I've been seeing COVID patients primarily because diabetes is a very high risk uh, disease. And so it's high risk for COVID. They're mostly elderly also. And then because of the, the protocol, which, in, which now includes, which now, which now includes um, dexamethasone for 10 days, patients were getting either diabetic ketoacidosis or very, very high blood sugar levels, which needed insulin treatment. So we were being called in uh, for that reason. And so I was going into the COVID ward to manage the blood sugars of patients who have, uh, me and along with other colleagues, um, endocrine, one of my other colleagues uh, declined to see patients and which is she's younger than me. And uh, she, she decided that, you know, for her own health and safety, she decided not to go uh, because she also has children. So she didn't go. And so there were only maybe entire time, there were only two of us out of five who were really willing to go into the ward. So I would suit up every day. And then, you know, we wear the full PPE and then you'd be in, um, then you'd be going in and seeing the patients. And so for, for me, it was traumatic because, you know, you could see them uh, all alone. And, and this, this the first person who passed away I was only in touch with his family through telephone. His son actually also was positive and he was isolated and quarantined in the community. Um, the, 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 there's an alert when you become positive. What happens is there's a community alert the, the, and there's also a barangay alert, meaning you're sent, the place where you live is told. And so they're, in, they're supposed to ensure that you stick to your quarantine. And so they, they kind of put a cordon around your house. It's, it's kind of stigma. There's a bit of a stigma actually associated with that is they are not allowed to leave the house. And then there's somebody responsible for, if you don't have a family member that can go out and do it for you, then somebody from the community is in charge of, you know, providing you supplies if you need it, they'd leave it outside your gate. And then, you know, you pick up uh, stuff like that. So, so it was quite traumatic because his son had COVID and he wasn't able to even his father there's an immediate cremation um because filipinos don't necessarily become cremated 
we like we're Roman Catholics. We like to be buried in the ground with all the rites yeah. and services. And so it was a big deal to receive father in a in cremated. It's 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 health mandated. It's public health. Whether you like it or not, you will you will have to be cremated. So that's how they received their parent in a in a in a in a cremated state. And that was heartbreaking. And, you know, I had to call them and let them know that their dad was, you know, was in extreme measures. And they decided uh, not to DNI, DNR, no resuscitation. And so when he passed, I, I called and let them know. Well, the hospital has protocols for release to a funeral parlor. Funeral parlor comes, picks up, and then they cremate. And then family member has to go and um, pick up. Somebody has to go and pick up. And so that was one of the things that is hard. I think um, that was really hard for people who had lost family members because not only because you can't be with them. Um, we're very strict about not letting people in, even if they're dying. We, you know, um, I, I understand that in other countries, they allow people to be up and go in. But for us, it's strict. So only really only healthcare people can go in. We do use those video, you know, there's a video call or, a, you know, something like that, but that's about it. And then the hard part, of course, is not being able to mourn uh, together because we have, we don't have just one day viewing. We have, you know, three day viewing. People are there 24 hours. Um, and then, and then uh, it's like a, the funeral is not just one occasion and one viewing. It's like, you know, 24 seven. So people will drop in all, all hours. And then you would have on the last day, the, the day before the burial, you would have a huge sort of, I wouldn't say party, but you would have a lot of people in and people would come to support and they'd stay for the mass and everything. So it's really hard because they, they now limit, you know, they limited. Uh, now we have online burial, actually, where you actually watch a funeral mass online. You attend someone's funeral online. And so it's just, you know, the hardest part, I think, was because Filipinos are so very social and we have so many of these rituals which are around, which surround rights for burial and, and marriage and, you know, because of the Catholicism, uh, and to be have to have that you know um, restricted severely is very difficult, and I think that's the, yeah. the hard part for everybody is they're not able to mourn properly yeah, that, that as must they be should. Very very hard, very very hard. And, and just one final thing, I'd, I'd just like to hear your perspective on Tish is about. The Philippines, your, your, your position on the globe in, in the Western Pacific, you're, you're part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, you're very exposed to typhoons, mm. earthquakes, national, oh, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> natural disasters. Have you thought about what might happen if you, know, you experienced the awful double whammy of a pandemic plus a natural disaster like an earthquake? So you've got more than one uh, area of pressure yeah. being applied on, on your health system. How do you think you know, you'd be would you be well placed to respond oh. to that? Okay, so so guess what? We had an earthquake earlier today, six one um, on uh, six point one uh, Richter in Mindanao, in the most southernest southernest most island in the Philippines. We had an earthquake today, and about two or three two two or three weeks ago, we had two sets of typhoons come through. One was the the it was it was supposed to be a really really strong one but it didn't hit manila and then the second one that was supposed to be less strong hit that way because we had massive flooding so um i we have something like 26 or more typhoons coming through during our during the year in the philippines and so for us um 
and because you know they they now they now can predict typhoons coming in you know way ahead of time that there's going to be a typhoon so we're really you know we're used to this oh there's another typhoon all right and so you know lockdown for the boats no no coast guard you know no 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 inter-island ferries no no fishing no whatever so they lock us down then evacuation is pretty good now they they do know how to evacuate very quickly so to minimize loss of life of course there's some things that you can't foresee like the landslides and the mapping so that's pretty hard we've had you know you've heard about our typhoons Haiyan and all those that, that those guys that have come through so we have massive relief efforts we have our departments of, you know, the departments that take care of relief efforts, Red Cross, all of that. So in terms of disaster relief, we're, we don't have enough, we don't have a lot of um, resources in the sense we have those really, really fancy, you know, like equipment that, that if, for example, there was an earthquake and then you had to look for people in, you know, we use like literally shovels and picks and then we have crews coming in to, from other countries who send people to help you know with ultrasound ultrasonic um, those kind of things so we've had people do that but for, for for typhoons for the most part it's mostly people on the ground the barangays would have their own um what do you call it? inflatable rafts you know um people would own their own if they're typhoon prone they usually own their own little catamarans that that they build their house in such a way when my father was growing up they had a house on kind of not stilts in the way but it was a it was an elevated house because they they lived in an area in in about 60 kilometers north of manila uh, from a place 60 kilometers north of manila where they speak a dialect that i don't understand okay it's so different from from 60 kilometers below and he lived in a house that was had a you know most of the living is on the in the top floor and so the ground floor is where they keep their 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 so the the, the boat the, the catamaran is tied on a post to a post in the house and as the water rises the catamaran rises so they're there and then they have a very very tall set of steps a bamboo bamboo or wooden steps and then all they need to do is step out of their front door into the catamaran it's because they have one and they know that it you know they tend to flood and so that's how they take care of themselves during the flooding rainy or flooding season so we've actually you know many of us know because we've lived you know it's every year it just happens every year so typhoon typhoon comes through how, and i how, think that um in terms tish how do, how do you think yeah. if you know if you were to get another high Ann in the context of a of a, of a covid pandemic do, do you think that would be enough to overwhelm the health system or do you think that actually the this the, the processes and the resilience is in place from your know, previous yeah. experience of, of those events that you yeah so so we had we had we had the pandemic we had a bad typhoon come through twice already uh one hit the middle of the country really badly uh Bicol region and everything so the middle of the country was badly hit uh, resources were available, resources were made available. And then um, again, as I said earlier, we had an earthquake today. Uh, from all accounts, there's no injuries or deaths. And so, you know, the other thing is, I think because it happens so often, our buildings are, there's a very strict code for, um, for when you build a structure, that it has to be um, resilient to a certain degree of you know, tremor. So uh, the most extreme earthquake that we had was, I think, seven point, nearly eight, 
or 8.2 or something like that. And even when that happened, we had, um, there was some damage in some in the main areas, but most of the time, we're lucky that it doesn't become hundreds and hundreds of people dying. So I think because of all the years of having to deal with this on a regular basis, as you say, resilience and also uh, community helpfulness. There's a term in Filipino called bayanihan. And bayanihan, bayan is country. And, and it's kind of like the, the attitude of helping, uh, extending yourself to your fellow, fellow, fellow countrymen. It's a it's a national trait. It's 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 a, it's a spirit of um, so so when you, whenever you see Philipp TV coverage of a disaster in the Philippines, you think there was nothing going on because people are smiling, people are waving at the camera. They're in flood water, but they're still waving at the camera. They still manage to smile and make a joke. So I don't know if it's a national trait, but I think the resilience of my country countrymen toward these kind of things is really, really, I mean, over the years has really become, has been built up. And so in a way, um, it's a thing that adaptable and we can manage in many situations. And I think one of the saving graces is that we find humor in almost any situation. And so I think that that's, that's pretty much uh, something that's developed over the years. Yeah, I think that's a really positive note to, to finish on. Well, thank you very much for your time chatting to us today, Tish. I, but what, in terms of what I've taken away from this, I think there's more similarities than there are differences in your experience of this pandemic. Uh, you know, you've, you've talked in broad terms about you know, just all the different facets of society, about your experience of lockdown, what it's been like uh, working in, in, in the hospital setting and uh, mask wearing and, and the vaccine and seeing relatives over Christmas. You know, we've covered all the, the kind of same areas, um, <laughs> the, the things that we we're discussing uh, in the UK at the moment. And it's just great to, to to hear your perspective. So thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome, Will. It's a it's a pleasure and an honor um, uh, to join you. And I hope that um, you know you will we will all pray for one another. Um, one of the things in the Philippines is that there's a there's a novena. Uh, it's a it's a it's a time when everyone stops and says a little prayer, and that usually happens at three o'clock in the afternoon, and um, uh, and people have been doing this since the pandemic began. And there's a special uh, orashka emperor, which is coming from from um, I know that that and everybody stops and says that prayer every day. And so I think that also being prayerful um, I know it you know it, it's not a big deal in many countries but for the Filipino prayer prayerfulness is also a very important way to keep sane and also keep your head on the ground and 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 and, and be hopeful I think that's part of the reason and so um, at three o'clock every day we pray for everybody across the world not only our families but everyone in 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 the entire world uh, that that everybody will survive this and that we will all get through together, you know, as a, it's a humankind thing. It's, it's everybody in the world. And that's why sometimes, you know, it's really sad um, that this is happening, but we have to learn from, we have to ask ourselves, is there a question? Is there something we need to learn? Have we been abusing our environment and taking so much granted for so long? I mean, I just believe that, you know, in, 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 in biblical terms, plagues and stuff don't happen, uh, you know, for a reason. I, I, I always believe everything happens for a reason. So maybe there's something that humankind needs to go back to. Remember where they started 
heritage track and the pollution getting better and the and the things that we used to see in the skies and everything even the pollution in manila has improved tremendously so i think that we just maybe this is god's way of reminding us that we need to do better by our planet and by each other in general terms yeah, yeah everyone is experiencing this and i hope that each of us and each of our countries uh you know really take it to heart that it's it's not it's it's not a political thing illness and this pandemic shouldn't be made a political tool it's it's, it's the bottom is, bottom line is it's somebody's health that's that's at peril and whatever it needs to be done to be able to ensure that we minimize everyone's risk and we don't transmit the disease to other people that's just being responsible and and just being you know a proper human being right so i hope that everyone yeah. everyone gets that message and everyone understands that each of us has personal responsibility toward our fellow human being to to be able to take care of one another well thank you for your prayers tish and it's very reassuring to know that we're all in this together as a, yes, as a global community absolutely Yes, and and also the, 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 the there's a lot we can learn and 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 take away from this pandemic and and grow and it's reminded of us of all the liberties that we previously took for granted. So uh, it's nice to finish on a positive yes. note. And and for those of you list uh, tuning in, what has your experience of this pandemic been like as a clinician in the corner of the world that you're in? Have you been practicing extreme medicine on your doorstep? If you'd like to feature in an episode of this podcast, please contact us by email at admin at extreme hyphen medicine.com. We'd love to hear from you. Look forward to uh, uh, look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Bye for now. 